0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're up to episode 33. It's the first week of May 1900. Muffet King is still besieged, but columns of British soldiers are advancing on the town from both the north and south. The Boers are falling back across both the Free State and Natal Fronts. President Steyn of the Freestadt is also about to retreat further north from his temporary capital, Kronstadt, while in the Natal Theater of Operations, the Boers are finding General Redvers Buller more than a match eventually, as the burgers vacillate between farming and fighting. It's been seven months of grind in a war that the British thought would take a few weeks. It was supposed to be a relatively inexpensive war, launched ostensibly to secure the important gold mines of Johannesburg for the empire, but now it's turned into a very expensive and politically taxing event. Before quitting Kronstadt, which is around 120 kilometers north of Bloemfontein on the main road and railway line from the Cape to Johannesburg, a number of crucial meetings have been held by the Boers. These were led by President Stane, who continued to be a source of strength for the defenders, secure in his knowledge that they were fighting a just war against an invasion of an empire. But as we know, believing your cause is just doesn't mean success is guaranteed. J.B. Atkins, a war correspondent captured by the Boers, asked for an interview with President Stain, who gracefully agreed... In his Manchester Guardian story, Atkins, who was an Australian, was immediately struck by Stain's physical impression. He is a big man physically, tall and broad, a man of immense strength, but very gentle in his manner, a man not easily swayed by outside agencies, one of those persons who think long and earnestly before embarking on a venture, but once started, no human agency would turn him back from the line of conduct he had mapped out for himself. During a series of meetings in Grunstead, The Boer leaders agree on plans to meet the threat of Lord Roberts and his 50,000-strong column of troops moving north from Bloemfontein. First, they banned civilian convoys that have caused commotion and havoc at times of extreme violence. Remember how the civilian wagons caused a bottleneck during the Boer retreat at Pardelbach. Transport would also be reduced to a minimum to focus the logistics and movement of men along the railways and roads. Then the leadership took a hard look at the leave policy. Up until late April 1900, Boer men were pretty much free to come and go as they pleased, which caused the generals some problems when they planned operations. The Boers then imposed stricter discipline through military courts. There were 12,500 Boers still willing to fight, mainly concentrated in the Free State, another 15,500 on other fronts in Natal, the Northern Cape, Eastern Transvaal. The British, on the other hand, totaled around 100,000, with Roberts' Central Army comprised of close to 50,000 alone. The others were defensive and scattered throughout southern Africa, with around 40,000 operational in the Natal Front. On the Boer side, the Orange Free State Artillery Unit, which was in chaos after Partenberg, where their commander Albrecht had been captured, was reconstituted under Judge Herzog, who was instrumental in assisting Steyn and other Free State leaders in reorganizing logistics such as clothing and field transport. General Oelefier's commando now numbered 5,000 men and was waiting east of Bloemfontein and also had refused to surrender after Bloemfontein fell. As we've heard, this commander continued to engage British scouts in a series of skirmishes and battles. But the deceptive felt was proving once more to be a mystery to the British and their propagandists. Imperial author Rudyard Kipling had rushed to Bloemfontein after it fell in April 1900 to assist in running the local newspaper, but was shaken by the vastness of the African plains as he watched the British army march about. He writes how the... Enormous, pale landscape swallowed up 7,000 troops without a sign. And then he says he could do nothing but wait, seeing nothing in the emptiness and hearing only a faint murmur as of wind along gas jets running in and out of unconcerned hills. The British were horrified too by what they saw as the Boers' willingness to go back on their oaths. This is a matter that still riles both the British and Boer descendants in some parts of southern Africa today. There's much finger pointing about who lied first and why and how much. Well, both sides indulged in lies and, at times, dark conspiracies against each other. For example, once Bloemfontein fell, the British believed a nation had been defeated. It's difficult to fully comprehend this. All these years later, but the Orange Free State was a country, the Transvaal a separate country. Boers in the Free State had already handed in their weapons and had sworn an oath not to return to battle, and they signed a piece of paper saying so. But it was a finer shade of morality, as Rain Kruger writes in his book Goodbye Dolly Gray. The Boers believed their oaths had been wrung from them under the duress of defeat and tantamount to acquiescing to the seizure of their country. Boer generals Christian de Wett and Cours de la Rey had both railed against the British using words to steal their land. So naturally, the burghers were inclined to ignore their oaths, believing the British were in cahoots with capitalist conspirators living in the big cities who were greedily stealing their country from under their very eyes. When the Boers surrendered their arms in the Free State, it had been a ruse. This has happened before in history and will happen again. They handed in old blunderbusses, muskets, flintlocks, along with elephant guns, instead of their precious morses, the modern magazine-fed rifle that could reach out over two kilometers across the felt and pluck a man from his horse. They had buried these proper rifles, believing there may be an opportunity to use these once more, a kind of insurance policy. Now they dug up their morses and returned to fight. This was happening behind Lord Roberts as his army approached Kruinstadt. That numerical superiority of the British was at its most frightening on the rolling felt. Even the rivers in this area are scarcely more than rivulets. And after the failed defense of the FET River on the 5th of May, which I described in the last podcast, the Boers were falling back across the broad Orange Free State Front. After the battle, a squadron of Canadians rode through the retreating Boers heading towards the railway line further north in a vain attempt to cut off the last train. They failed. On the right column, Hamilton entered the picturesque town of Winberg. However, Roberts had found the battle at the Fete taxing on his men, so he stopped for several days to recoup. The horses needed resting, and the railway bridge over the Fete had been blown up, so supplies had to be offloaded from the train on the south loaded onto ox wagons, ford the river, then reload a train on the north bank. Roberts ordered Hamilton to move his large column closer to the center for the next march to the Sand River, and also in case they came under attack, while the latter left a unit in Winbach to keep the burgers under close watch. Roberts had heard that the Boers were going to defend the Sand River aggressively. Remember, it was the scene of the signing of the Sand River Convention many years earlier that was supposed to have granted independence to the Boer Republics. It lies 80 kilometers to the south of Kroonstad. I also told you last week how Denise Reitz and his brothers had fought a leading column of Canadians at the Sand River already, along with the Afrikaner Cavalry Corps and British intelligence gatherers, such as they were, believed this emotive river would be hard to cross with so much history connected to the area. Even Christian de Wet believed his men would fight to the death here. But both British intelligence and De Wett were wrong. Reitz was part of a 3,000-strong commando led by Louis Boerter that had arrived at the Sand River. Soon after Boerter's commando settled in, this Boer general, who was to become South Africa's prime minister later, sent the highly successful general de la Rey to the west in an attempt to protect Mafeking from the relief columns heading there from both the south, the Cape, and the north from the then Rhodesia. Boerter's men took up positions along and behind the river, with the Free State commandos to the left. This meant the entrenched area stretched for close to 35 kilometers and was defended by a total of 8,000 Boers. It was at this point that Free State President Steyn decided he'd travel to the front and inspire the men to defend the river at all costs. Upon his return to Kronstadt, he stood at the station and made a speech as the train steamed out to the front, saying... Look at the train, he was saying. There are your brothers going forward to take part in the struggle which you and I have to carry on to its end. And you are going to stand here while they are fighting for their country? We have fought against the hordes of Great Britain for more than seven months. We can fight seven times as long if necessary. Go then, burgers, in God's name for the cause of your dear country, for your wives and children. It is better to die on the battlefield than to become slaves of your ancient enemy. This biblical speech, unfortunately, appeared to have little effect. On May the 10th, Roberts struck, ordering a vanguard of 4,000 horsemen under General French to round the western flank of the Boers in another attempt to cut the railway line behind the Boer leadership. Louis Buter was wise to this feint and drew back his centre and then wheeled to his right to fend off the cavalry and mounted infantry. This is a highly vulnerable tactical maneuver called forming front to a flank, but was successful in forcing French to ride further and further north so that fighting took place along a 40-kilometer arc from the river. This amazing move, by Barbota, was a bit like the San people of South Africa hunting a buck. Their technique is to jog behind such an animal for hours upon end in a medium-paced shuffling gait, particularly across the desert sands, which then causes the animal to run continuously and eventually it dies through overheating. In the British case, their horses gave out and they were too exhausted to make a final charge for the railway line. But it now meant that Roberts had an open door straight through the middle along the line directly towards Kruinstadt, and he advanced 12 kilometers in a day. At the same time, Hamilton's artillery and the Freestadt artillery dueled from a distance. Eventually, Hamilton's overcame the much smaller Boer unit. However, he also failed to cut the line to the north and was fought off by the Boers. The Boer defense of Sand River failed for one main reason. The landscape. It was open land very difficult to defend, and instead of fighting to the death, as Stane hoped, the Boers retreated in disorder like a disorganized rabble, said Denise Rates, and he called it the long-drawn-out humiliation of defeat. On the 11th of May, Lord Roberts advanced halfway between the Sand River and Kronstadt, around 25 kilometers. The fall of the town was imminent, and Boers were bleak. President Stain continued to call on his men to fight, but it was a waste of time. It was clear to all that it would be suicidal, and the overarching ethos, as we've seen from this war so far on the part of the Boers, was the dictum, live to fight another day. President stein ordered a table to be placed in the town center. He clambered on top of this table, standing tall, and exhorted the burghers in another impassioned speech, but the townsfolk were quiet and said nothing. The president watched the mainly Transvaal horsemen and wagons streaming north through the town past him and realized the futility of further action. He needed to withdraw himself. Stein then declared Heilbronn, the new capital. That's a town around 120 kilometers northeast of Kruenstadt and climbed aboard what was known as a Cape Cart, which is a small two-wheeled, four-seated horse-drawn cart, the 19th century equivalent of today's family sedan and he set off. Kronstadt's stores were opened for everyone to gather as much as they could before the remainder was set on fire and torched, leaving nothing for the British, and the railway bridge to the south of the town was blown up. By nightfall, the defences were abandoned. Lord Roberts had already sent another flying column of Canadians northwards in an attempt to blow up the line to stop the last Boer train, but they failed. The following day on the 12th of May, Lord Roberts entered Kronstadt. For the troops, it had been many days on the move, but not everything was terrible. For example, one instance, a young New Zealander called Frank Perham described what can only be called a comical incident. They were trying to cross a river with a team of mules, donkeys and horses, which went badly. And he writes, We had trouble with the donkey teams this time. The donkeys refused duty right in the center of the ford, and the greater part of the loads had to be removed from the wagons and carried across per manpower. The task of carrying the goods was assigned to an infantry corps, the Scottish Rifles, good whisky drinkers. A fair part of the load comprised cases of whisky, and somehow many of the cases fell to pieces. It was very tempting to the Scotties, and most of them became hopelessly drunk. The drunken Scotties were then brought before their commander and sentenced to a week's detention. The men were followed in the escapades by army-supplied prostitutes who were based in small towns en route. Our same New Zealand source, Frank Perham, describes being lured into one town for a little bit of R&R. He doesn't say which town, but reports, They took me to a place clean and well-kept. Also, quite a number of girls, white, yellow and black. I sat on a chair and immediately a buxom black lass perched herself on my knees, put her arms around my neck and commenced whispering in my ears. Perim claims he then left the establishment. But the incident serves to outline how open the British army was about both their men's sexual needs and the fact that prostitutes of all colours were applying their trade following this army. I'm not aware of any research conducted into the effect this had on mixed-race developments in South Africa, but it must have been significant. Bear in mind there were at least 44,000 men in Robert's Central Army alone, or some say closer to 50,000. We need to cast our gaze further afield now because of a convoluted attempt that was being made to relieve Mafeking, but from the far northeast coast. As Roberts arrived in Kruinstadt, a Canadian expedition was heading towards Mafeking in the most circuitous route by the port of Beira in Portuguese East Africa. They took a train from the port to Umtali in the east of the then Rhodesia, then to Marandeles further west, with the expectation that they'd take a further train southwest to Guelo and Bulawayo, and then help relieve the town of Mafeking where Lord baden Powell was holed up. This was like a great giant circle across the bottom of Africa, beginning on a ship in Cape Town, moving to a train, then ox wagons and carts, and finally marching and riding horses into Mafeking. King. That trip today remains difficult and time-consuming, let alone in early 1900. Of course, the men were not entirely sure where they were heading and only found out in the final phase of that long trip. It's difficult to understand just how challenging travel was generally in those days, And this trip in particular was even more so. A description of that uh, march is fascinating, can be found in the book Painting the Map Red, Canada and the South African War, by Carmen Miller. The 400-kilometer trek from Beira to Marindeles was firstly on board a cattle train. And as the locomotive was powered by wood, not coal, this meant it didn't have the power to climb some hills and stopped repeatedly. It also meant cinders from the engine were swept backwards over the men and goods behind, setting fire to their clothes on their backs and the wooden cases. Much of the precious water was used to douse these flames. It took nearly five days, and finally they were at Marindelas. But for many, the harshness of the trek was only just beginning. After recovering for two days, sleeping under canvas, they began their 380-kilometer march south to Bulawayo. This Rhodesian field force, as it was known, was led by Major General Frederick Carrington and it marched straight into an area that had been heavily affected by the Indebeli Wars or Chimurenga of 1893 and 1896. The local Shona and then Indebeli population were not welcoming regarding all white soldiers as enemies. The telegraph lines were cut about 100 kilometers south of Marindelis but the British believed this had been the work of pro-Boer operators. However, it could easily have been the local Shona people. And if so, it would have been ironic where further south, black South Africans were generally, and I say generally, in favor of the British in the fight against the Boers, believing the British would give them some form of rights. Here in Rhodesia, the actions of black citizens were against the British advance. So, a little conflict and a little contradiction. As we know in war, nothing is simple. Finally, Major Houdin and his men arrived in Bulawayo where there were 4,000 residents and, believe it or not, electric streetlights. They possessed every modern convenience, and the townsfolk entertained the men with barrels of ale and other beverages. On May the 9th, the column of Canadians under the Major climbed aboard a train and were cheered off from bulawayo as they chugged south on their final leg of this roundabout trip from Cape Town via Byra to Mafeking. Colonel Plumer and 500 men were encamped at a place called Sefatili, around 60 kilometers north of Mafeking, awaiting the Canadians with their artillery and ammunition, not to mention fresh manpower. The train only made it as far as Utsi, which was around 50 kilometers from Plumer's camp, and a heavily armed company arrived to lead the Canadians on their last leg. The guns, ammunition, stores and baggage were unloaded and the men marched for two days, finally reaching Pluma at Sefertili on the 13th of May. Things were moving again in the far northwest. They joined up for the final assault on Mafeking, while in the center Roberts was in Kroonstad. The coordinated march on Johannesburg and Pretoria was about to take place, while Mafeking was about to be relieved. Troops were convinced the final push was underway. How wrong they were. So we'll camp here for the moment and pick up the story next week with Muffet King relieved and Roberts back in the saddle. Until then, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and check out some new photos on our website abwarpodcast.com and if you want to contact me, direct message please at Des Latham on Twitter. Until then, goodbye. <laughs> And zonder gedal, langs die mooie vierste wal, het zee voor oorlogsdagen blij. O, breng mij terug naar die Oud-Transval, daar waarmee saar is.